you've been looking for inspiration, hope, and an insightful look into literacy transformation, you have found the right place. This Literacy Leadership Podcast miniseries features powerhouse co-host Linda Diamond, Dr. Tracy Wheaton, Dr. Tim Odegaard, and myself, Dr. Terry Noland. Through this series, we embark on a journey that celebrates the power of words, the art of education, and the incredible potential within each of us to be leaders. In a world where knowledge is currency, literacy is the key that unlocks doors to opportunity, enlightenment, and progress. It is a passport to a brighter future, not just for individuals, but for entire communities and societies. Through this Change Makers mini-series, we gather not just as observers, but as champions of literacy leadership. Each episode includes a special guest that stands large in literacy leadership. We come together to honor these leaders, to learn from their experiences, and to chart a course for the future of literacy. This mini-series is a convergence of ideas, experiences, and aspirations, a symphony of voices that will resonate far beyond the sound waves of our voices. So, with hearts full of hope, Minds open to possibility. Let us dive into the rich tapestry of discussions, ideas, and dreams that await us. Together, as literacy leaders, let us be the change we wish to see in this world. Thank you for joining us on this remarkable journey towards a brighter future and a more literate society. Welcome, everyone, to this amazing series that we are kicking off here on the Learning Ally Literacy Leadership Podcast. We are so glad that you are here to partake in the wisdom and the knowledge of some individuals that have chosen to come around the table and invite leaders from around our country to engage in conversations about literacy leadership. You know what? We deserve to live in a land where we not only lead well, but where we lead well enough that our students benefit. I love the quote that leaders know the way, show the way, and go the way. As we come together and bring this group of individuals around the table, I thought it would be great to bring leaders together that do just that, know the way, show the way, and go the way. I want to invite into this space leaders that are going to be joining throughout this podcast series. Linda Diamond, a leader across this country. Dr. Tracy Whedon, another leader that is leading large around literacy. And as she always says, this is going to be something we solve because not on my watch. And also Dr. Tim Odegaard, who brings the brilliance of science to life with what he understands and knows, especially coming from a place of neurodiversity himself. Thank you all for being with me as we go on this journey together. As we jump into this space, I want us to start with this episode about understanding where we've come from, where we are now, and what we envision for the future. And to do that, let's start with what have we learned? What has been good? What have we learned from 
in the past. Linda, I'm going to bring you into this conversation because you're someone that has gone through many of the changes in our country. Tell us about what you have seen as we have moved through history. Thank you, Terry. Yes, I've lived through many of these changes. And I think I'd like to talk specifically about Reading First, because Reading First was the first time that we were really trying something as a country to move reading instruction. The intent of Reading First was to continue the work that started with the National Reading Panel, but to now fund schools to be able to implement specified practices that would bring the National Reading Panel findings into the classroom. So it had two goals. The first goal of Reading First was to increase the percent of students reading at or above grade level. And the second goal was to decrease the percent of students seriously below grade level. Now, the national report came out and basically said that they saw strong results in decoding, but not strong results in comprehension. However, four states in particular had individual studies that were commissioned to be done and led and peer-reviewed by David Pearson and Isabel Beck. And those four states did have exceptionally strong results, not just in decoding, but also in comprehension. Pennsylvania, Utah, Michigan, and in Florida. In all cases, they saw significant improvement in the number of students reading at benchmark or above on comprehension measures and the number of students reading below significantly lowered. Similarly, California commissioned its own independent peer-reviewed evaluation and found the same strong positive results. And then a very important study was done with the Bureau of Indian Education Schools that participated in Reading First. And those schools also had significant improvement in comprehension and decoding and a significant reduction in the number of students below benchmark. In addition, all four of those states and California and the Bureau of Indian Education saw a decline in special ed referrals. So what did they do? Why did it work there and not in other places? Well, they had very strong leadership. They had a system that was dictated, in essence, by either their state or, in the case of the Bureau of Indian Education, by the Bureau. And they had leaders who were well-prepared to make those changes over time. So they were implementing well and with fidelity. They also adopted 
very strong curriculum that more carefully aligned to the components that were required in reading first. And they used and were trained in how to use reliable assessment measures to gauge progress. In addition, they did what was not done by the national study. When Reed Lyon and others wrote up the plan for the national evaluation, it was supposed to be done every year. The reason the evaluation was supposed to take place every year was so they can learn what was not working and remedy it right away. Instead, the national evaluation did not happen until the third year, which meant that the improvements that would have been seen if they had done an evaluation yearly could not be implemented. Whereas in the four states, California and the Bureau, they evaluated yearly and as a result, made tweaks every year to the system. The second problem that the national study had is that in many of the districts around the state that had reading first schools, the non-reading first schools were also doing many of the same practices. So when they were compared, they didn't see more significant growth in the reading first schools. But in fact, many of the schools in those states were not doing business as usual. They were doing many of the reading first practices. So there were some problems with the national study, but we did learn some things. And this is where I think Isabel Beck was really important in what she had to say. She said that there were two ways to look at this, glass half empty or the glass half full. And here's what she said. The people who look at it as the glass half empty are the ones who say, so what if kids can decode? But if they can't comprehend, what does it matter? The glass half full folks will say they need decoding. Improved decoding puts readers in a position for improved comprehension. And then she also said, here was a serious problem in education research. When something doesn't work completely, we fail to build on what did work and we fail to figure out why a component didn't work. And that's what I believe we are learning now, is that we have to look at what did work and build on it continually but we also have to be aware of what we need to address, such as, for sure, stronger implementation over time with support. There were some reading first states that didn't even really fully fund coaches, and we know the importance of coaching. So this is what I would start when I think about what we learned in the past and what we can continue to learn and build from.
Linda, I appreciate that explanation so much because so often we hear about it didn't work, it didn't work, it didn't work. And you and others in the same space took a leadership mindset and said, no, it's not about it didn't work. It's about what we learned from what did work and what we can learn moving forward, a very learning forward mindset. A mindset that says, okay, we tried something and we put a lot of effort, research, science, and understanding into it. And now what can we do to change things going forward? So I love that explanation, that look back. I want to continue looking back on areas that we have learned from in the past and what we can do as we move towards the future. And this is where I'm going to bring Dr. Tim Odegaard in. And Tim, you come with that neuroscience understanding of where we have come with the research. Help us as leaders in this space understand what we've learned over time. So yes, I am a neuroscientist. I'm also a person who does practical research into implementation in schools. So I've gone from soup to nuts. I'm also a trained interventionist who actually trained kids. And I'm a former pre-K teacher for many years, as well as myself being neurodivergent. So I understand that lived experience and a parent of a child who was neurodivergent as well. I recall when I was being exposed by one of my mentors, Reed Lyon, and having to go back and read the history and legacy of this, thinking about the internal validity of the study that was done at the national level to begin with. The reading coaches who were hired to be part of the coaching piece to see if coaching would matter only got one extra hour. In science, we have to account for and say, what did we do methodologically? I'm also the editor-in-chief for a peer-reviewed academic journal, The Annals of Dyslexia. Peer review exists for a reason. We look at what have we learned and what inferences can we draw. So as an independent consumer of science, I always look with that gaze, all my different lenses. So we have learned, and I would say as a developmental cognitive neuroscientist, that development is a gene-brain environment interaction. We've done a lot with the brain and the kind of behaviors that emerge from the brain. Genetic work is really large numbers, takes hundreds of thousands of people to do it really well. If you want to try to do some type of genotyping of something as complex as literacy acquisition in the human species. So that's been a challenge for sure. There's fabulous research that has been done. For example, we know that certain types of conditions like developmental dyslexia do seem to have a genetic link. There seem to be multiple aspects of the genome that are impacted. And we know this first and foremost from behavioral genetics, where we've looked and done funded research that was the predecessor and came out of Reading First in the centers that were set up by Reed and others across the country. The one that did that work was the Reading Center out of the University of Colorado and the work of Dick Olson, Bruce Pennington, and others. Research continues at another one of those funded researchers underneath the guidance and leadership of people like Dr. Sarah Hart out of the Florida Center for Reading Research. Behavioral genetics has still been where we've been learning a lot about that. So we know that the genes matter. We also know that they give rise to how our brains develop. But what we're going to really have to lean into moving forward is talk about the social determinants. And what do we mean by social determinants? We have to talk about the fact that development happens not in the Petri dish, but in an environment where we live, learn, and work. 
And that is something that we have just started to touch on. Another legacy out of reading first and the huge amount of money we have is that we now have very robust, reliable, and valid universal screening instruments. We now have, thanks to legislation, a requirement in many states that we now do that, including California, thanks to a lot of effort, where we have to universally screen our own kids. We have some states, such as my state here in Tennessee, Arkansas, New Mexico, and other states, now warehouse that disaggregate at the child level. What that's allowed is research scientists like myself and others to now look at populations. And that's really important to drive research to the next level. When I worked in a different study, because I was also a professor of radiology and psychology for about 10 years at UT Southwestern Medical School, and I worked part of a collaborative consortium that involved people from Johns Hopkins and University of Florida and Emory University, UT Southwestern, UT Dallas and other places, we were doing very large scale epidemiological research, looking at a very real condition in our nation. What Reed's vision was for epidemiological research to happen longitudinally out of the centers. That was something that we never quite realized as a result of that. But I do think that the tools that happened by having the instruments developed and now having public policy created in the enabling context to have those data available is allowing us to look at populations and start to have the data to look at low incidence and more minority and other types of factors that we weren't able to do. It's allowed people like Julie Washington and I to start testing conceptual models that have been proposed lately based on discrepancy and to say, oh, wait, hold on a second. If we were to use certain discrepancy models, who would be captured? White kids who have money at the house. But it wouldn't capture our brown and black kids, and it might not capture our impoverished white kids. So let's rethink that because we live in an environment and literacy is a human invention. Think about that for a second, listeners. We invented the ability to put our oral language and our oral traditions, which have been so powerful to us as a species for all cultures for so long. Think about another Western culture. Beowulf is so important. Why? Because it actually was captured from an oral tradition to capture that legacy in our European past down. Why was the tragedy of the Library of Alexandria burning? That we lost written knowledge. What happened? We went to the Dark Ages once the clerics weren't there to preserve. And then what happened? The democratization of literacy for all. That was powerful for our societies to rise up, for us to have advances and to move into a very powerful part of our species with the ability to do so much. But it's based on a human invention. We invented reading and writing. And it just so happens that for many of us, it's not an easy thing for us to acquire. And we've learned a lot about the factors that it takes. And most importantly, it takes the right instructional context. And so the future ends moving beyond thinking that we are looking only at Petri dishes to do our science. We have to move into the messiness, which many people have already been doing, of living, breathing schools. And the future is we have to leverage the tools that have been developed by people in the past and the current available data to move this to a much larger scale. So we can start to think about populations and look within those subpopulations in a different way. And I think that is going to be a powerful tool that is going to be put in place by enabling context that's been facilitated by initially the dyslexia legislation that swept the United States and then the right to read legislation that swept both Canada 
with their human rights inquiry and the ruling that happened to say that reading and writing are not privileges, they are basic human rights. And that has been echoed societally for so long. So I do think that we have to move to have a informed conversation and it's not going to be as easy for us scientists to just hide in our labs and be siloed. I think the work to be done by research scientists moving forward is the work that we see from so many of us now, including a friend and colleague, Dr. Tiffany Hogan, who has started an implementation center at Harvard and is getting out there to do that work that I saw modeled in other places for so long now needs to be more mainstream. And that's going to take a mixture of things, but it's going to take honest-to-goodness partnerships with leaders in schools, listening and learning and not saying it's only what we're going to do and what's in it for us. And it can't be the research science saying it's only what is in it for us too. So I know that you maybe have wanted me to say, what have we learned and what are the different skills? They know that. Those are written down. The NRP was published in 2000. They reviewed hundreds of thousands of research reports. Then we had in 2016, the Barbara Foreman report that came out of that was commissioned by IES to say, what have we learned since then? They confirmed many of the same things with even greater granularity because additional instructional research had been funded by the federal government since its publication. That's all true. But what have we really learned about what the future is going to hold? It's going to take real partnership and breaking out of our silos and our comfort zones and leaning into discomfort to work together because we're always stronger together. Kim, that was absolutely beautiful. I know that our listeners today can't see faces, but I want you to know that I was smiling, Linda, Tracy, we were all smiling as Tim spoke because he really brought it together and why his unique perspective of an individual that's been in the classroom, that does understand implementation, that is neurodiverse himself, and also brings that scientist perspective. He is someone that is leading in this effort to bring all of those constituents to the table to say, we have to do this different. There is something about leadership that is all about vision. Leaders have vision. They cast vision. They see more and before others see. So Tim, I think you're someone that's casting a vision of what we need to do. Would you like to add anything to that? I think that's so powerful, and I hope that I'm just one of many. I think that I've been so heartened over the past few months as I've done the hard work of being vulnerable and leaving into my neurodivergence, that I think what that allows us to do is speak from our authentic voice, acknowledge who we are, what we know, and we can see and have compassion and empathy for others to say, I may not know what you've walked, but I know that it was hard for me or I know these concerns. So I do think that's a power and we need to bring people together and we need to reconcile and heal. And it's going to take so many of us from different perspectives. You know, I had a mom come up to me this past week after I gave a science of reading presentation and she wanted to talk about her child with autism and his neurodivergence and my neurodivergence. She said, he's running into these obstacles, these obstacles, these obstacles. And I looked at her and said, mama, you're a black woman. You don't need me to tell you what it's like to have obstacles in your life. Lean into what you've experienced your entire life. Build from that strength that you had to develop and help your son understand that, yes, it's a hard work and it's a hard walk. And I know what it's like to walk a hard walk. I don't know what it's like to be a black boy on the autism spectrum, 
but I can tell you that I know what it's like when someone says that you don't fit the peg that they want you to fit into. And I think if we could do that, we would see each other and we would have a better awareness that I'm not going to tell you what it's like to have challenges when I know she knows what challenge looks like. Draw from that sense of pain to transform it into strength that you can give to your child. I think that we're stronger together means we're stronger together by seeing one another. And I thought I was going to put that neurodivergence talk on the shelf, but when I had people coming to me in tears, seeing that they heard themselves in my words, but it was grounded in science and what we've learned and what we haven't learned, it made me think, well, I may not do this much more, but there's the kernel of something much greater fairy in this message of empathy being a superpower. Absolutely, Tim. Thank you so much for sharing that perspective about what we've learned, where we're headed. I now want to invite Dr. Tracy Whedon to be a part of this conversation about what we've learned from the past. Tracy, you've also been a leader in school districts. You've been someone that has walked this journey a long time. You understand where we've come from as a nation as well. So help us learn a little bit about what you have seen happen in our country, what we've learned and where we're going. Thank you, Terry. One of the things I want to bridge from is what Tim shared with such heart, and that is we need to approach this work with grace, with empathy, and with compassion. As leaders, instead of dismissing the efforts of people who went before us as pioneers in the work, let's lean into what they learned. Let's avoid language like it didn't work because it takes away from our noble profession, which we need to elevate, which we need to make attractive to the next generation of those who will follow us. There is a reason why universities are finding their education departments dwindling in numbers. We are at a mighty important crossroad, friends. This is about bringing honor to the profession of educating the most precious treasure, our children. And I'm so honored to be in this space with people like all of you who I love genuinely and respect deeply and have learned so much from and I want to encourage leaders listening, never check your common sense at the door. Give yourself the space to ask powerful questions and to sharpen your saw. A principle my dad taught me, Mihai to a grasshopper, was iron sharpens iron. You need to access podcasts like this one that will challenge your thinking and allow you to absorb actionable leadership moves that allow you on your watch to establish sustainable change. And you know that the shift of reading first, I remember being an assistant superintendent in the seventh largest district in the country over that initiative in the Houston area. And I heard someone speak dismissively of reading first. And I was hurt by that because I thought about the campuses where I saw children learning to read proficiently and at advanced levels. And I thought, really? Can we be that shallow and so dismissive without really thinking deeply about what we learned? Leaders, I invite you to confirm that for yourself. Dig into what Linda shared and also what Tim shared about 
neuroscience. You know, there was a time when we couldn't see inside of the brain, but now we can. And this is our opportunity to build the body of implementation science. Tim is one of those folks who's going to go boots on the ground, roll up his sleeves, get in the muck of it all. He is not in an ivory tower. And I am so grateful he said that about researchers out there. We're not researching to be in the ivory tower and pontificate. There's another proverb that says, feed the dog you want to get stronger. We cannot continue to feed the dogs of racism and classism and expect this country to thrive. We're researching to make a difference for children, especially those who are marginalized because of poverty and systemic racism and classism that has been fed at the table. We need to feed the one that is going to feed our children. And, you know, one of the things that was a major shift for us nationally was Common Core, supported through Park and Smarter Balanced. And it's so interesting. One of the things I try to challenge myself to do is think about my own literacy privilege. I was among that 5% of children who learned to read effortlessly. So in spite of navigating the main streets of Detroit and having less than stellar instruction, I was one of the lucky ones. I was one of the blessed ones. But what about the children who need structured, explicit literacy instruction? So when I think about the six shifts, I want to invite you to think about the common core, how we could allow that foundational piece to get absorbed into this big glittering initiative. And as leaders, again, not checking our common sense at the door, not keep that plate spinning while we're spinning new ideas. So I want you to think about if we do not have a child who has the equity piece of foundational literacy skills, balancing informational and literary texts, they're still not accessible. It's a great shift, but they can't accept it. Knowledge in the disciplines. The fastest improving systems focus on cross-content literacy. That's admirable. It's very important. But again, a child who has not learned to honor vocabulary development through oral language, structured literacy in terms of the code and understanding the code and applying that to the rest of their lives, the staircase of complexity and understanding we need to have children learning from complex texts. I still use my decoding skills and I'm 61 years old, right? We never outgrow those skills. So that's crucial that we can provide access to those texts and the same knowledge in different ways, but we can't ignore the fact that if they have potholes in their foundational skills, they're always going to be playing the hard game of learning to love to read because they cannot do the basic foundational things that lead to comprehension. So we've got to have that balance. Text-based answers is another one of those shifts. So again, bringing my literacy privilege to my thinking where the common core is concerned. Yes, we definitely want them to be able to provide evidence for what they are reading, but if they can't read it, they can't provide evidence. I could go on and on, but I do want to highlight vocabulary development. We know that without exposure, there is no composure for children when it comes to academic vocabulary. That begins knee high in the home 
in the preschool setting and on and on throughout their experience in school. So how do we expose children to vocabulary that will build their ability to engage in comprehending the text that they're reading? What's interesting to me is a shift of ensuring that EL learners or EB learners and an asset-based approach is a part of the big picture is something we cannot ignore in a society that is increasingly diverse. And so making sure that our stakeholders have a place at the table as we're moving forward with the work is absolutely essential as we look backward to what we learned, what we can do better, and where we are heading. We must embrace a collective moonshot of literacy for all, particularly when we think about AI, artificial intelligence is going to create a wider divide unless we are very intentional about these shifts and moving to the next together. Thank you, Tracy, for sharing about what we have learned from Common Core and some of the things that came out for me in your conversation, and especially around leadership, is the simple fact that we're all leaders in this journey, but you got to see yourself as a leader. You brought up the simple fact of vocabulary and the importance of vocabulary development. Families are our child's first teachers. So you are a leader in that space. You have the ability to lead well and lead large in those areas with your children at home. Same goes for anyone in a school building. We can shower our children with words. We can create word feast instead of word famine because that is what needs to happen for our children. Gary, I want to add that If we think of literacy as a form of currency, that gives children social access to their community. So we can acknowledge and honor the currency the child comes to the classroom with and the parent brings because that gives them access to navigating the dialect or the language variety they are loved in. We cannot diminish that or take that away because the dialect may not be high prestige in the view of some. When I am navigating my hometown of Detroit, I can't on a dime switch my code and find my place in a community that has been marginalized. I will not give up that currency. It's important to me and it's important to our children. We don't have to put them in a position to choose between either or, it's both and whether it be language variety based on Spanish or Greek or Hebrew or whatever they speak, that gives them access to their community. And then in terms of classroom English, they deserve that currency as well. And so the question is, how do we bridge between those two forms of currency, honoring both forms and giving children empowerment around leveraging those with conscious purpose, intentionality, and not pretending like our class advantage doesn't exist or our literacy advantage doesn't exist. I could be so insensitive to and have been as an educator because of ignorance when I was a high school English teacher with the dyslexic student, using language like you should try harder, you need to focus, 
I didn't know what I didn't know. But this is our opportunity in our spaces. When you know better, then we can do better. And we can empower those coming along with us to have a different way of framing the opportunity of closing this gap, regardless of the zip code the student comes from or the parent comes from. Tracy, I think you've taken us into a little bit of a space of where we are now as a country, truly understanding that language, that literacy, that the ability to read is a currency of where we are now. I want to bring Linda back into this conversation. She's doing so much work right now around this space of where we are. And Linda, I want you to share with our audience about where we are now as a nation and a little bit of the work that you are doing around that. I want to first say something about what has been said by Tim, by Tracy, by me. What's in common with things we learn from reading first, from how the Common Core was implemented to Kim's comments about the partnerships that we need to have in this space, because we do. And I think that's the common thread. And I think that's an important focus for leaders in schools to understand that there's a lot that we know but there's more still to be learned. And I think that's something that came from reading first, came from understanding what worked or didn't work with implementation of the Common Core, what Tim has seen in his work, particularly in working with diverse populations and with neurodiversity in particular. And I think our leaders, besides giving grace, besides recognizing that we will make mistakes along the way, should understand we will always be moving forward and wanting to keep learning and doing better. And the work that I'm doing now is just that. I've been going back through a lot of the older studies. And I've had a really joyous opportunity over the last month and a half to speak to many of those early path trailblazers, many of whom Tim knows in particular. I've had long conversations with Reed Lyon and long conversations with Sharon Vaughn. And Sharon in particular is still doing the work. And I've had the opportunity to speak with Linnea multiple times, Linnea Airy, and with Wes Hoover. And I think that recognizing that we're standing on the shoulders of giants who have brought us to the point that we're at. And then we have the young Turks, as some would call them the protégés of many of those. And I've had the opportunity to meet with many of them. And in some ways, all of them share some concerns about what may or may not be happening in the science of reading and structured literacy space. 
and they're sharing the concern that there may be some misunderstandings around word recognition skills in particular, some misunderstandings in phonemic or phonological awareness and how it's to be taught. And they're concerned that they're seeing in the, frankly, really great news that's coming out of states with their science of reading legislation, but they're concerned that there may be a bit of a one-size-fits-all approach emerging in some places. And that implementation, the hard work that Tim and Tracy and myself, that we've had to do is not attended to as much as it should be. That the passing of a law or the mandating of behaviors or practices to stop will not get the results that we all want. And I think that's what I'm most attending to these days. And in particular, I'm positive and excited and feel good about the direction, but I think we're all also recognizing that there's some cautions. And in California in particular, some people are fearing that what we're doing is going to be too slow and too fragmented. We have legislation now, as Tim said, about a screener, and we're starting to see shifts in what higher ed will be doing. But I think our changes that are maybe viewed as slow are actually good. I think it's going to be thoughtful. And I think that's what we need our leaders to understand. Thank you, uh, Linda. It's exciting to see how we can learn from people, as you say, these giants of literacy and learn and take their thinking forward. Tracy, come into this conversation and help us think more about what's happening now coming off of what Linda said as well. What Linda said is profoundly important for leaders who are at the state board level. Please think deeply about what Linda shared. This is one of the things I've seen with some state boards, when they initiate this kind of change, they bring in thought leaders who have done the real work and they listen keenly because they realize there's a difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. They make sure that they have stakeholders who represent those that they are serving. So they think in a very holistic way about how to responsibly roll out this kind of initiative. On the other hand, I have actually served on a committee where I took my time with just my life and very precious, offered up recommendations, and they were summarily ignored. That is an exercise in futility and it is dishonorable to the people who are serious about real change. Do not waste our time. If you're serious about real change, and I'm not talking to those of you who are, so please don't take this wrong. I just have to say, I have to speak on behalf of my colleagues who are doing their best 
to offer the most cutting-edge recommendations. Listen to them. Listen and respond accordingly. Don't just bring us together and waste time because if we do not support educator success, we will never prevent the failure of students. This is high stakes for us. We believe and want to support children succeeding at this opportunity to become literate for life. It's not just about proficiency. This is about the quality of life for children who are the future adults who will help lead this nation. And so we take this very seriously. And I just have to underscore everything that Linda said. And I so admire her because you would be shocked at the war story she could tell you about her sacrifice personally. She doesn't put it out there. She doesn't play the violin. She still is a solution-oriented leader. I deeply love and admire. She deserves better and others like her deserve better. And Tracy, we want these giants that have done this hard work to see success. Tim, talk to me a little bit about where we are right now. I don't know what I can add other than maybe compliment what my colleagues and peers, Tracy and Linda, just shared. I want to go back because Dr. Tracy Whedon always talks about the knowledge economy. And I think it's a powerful message she makes. She was alluding to that earlier. So I just want to take a little bit of time to kind of unpack that and compliment her voice in this space. In fact, I'm working on a project right now and I'm writing a commentary with some peers and we're going to use, because once you hear this, you can't unhear it and it'll probably jive with how you were already thinking, but you might have words to put behind it. What is a knowledge economy? It's an economy that means that intellectual capital your intellectual capital drives this economy because we're a technocratic system now. Everything is automated. Everything is technology. Everything requires literacy. You can't do anything without technology now, but the gatekeeper to technology is literacy and it makes it difficult. And we're being positioned, people like me from white, blue collar backgrounds or other people from blue collar backgrounds, we start to look around. One of the things that we see is poverty knows poverty. People that are working class know working class. Others may try to divide us and we have our own cultures in our own ways. But I was reminded of something. When I said that I got a, a cousin named Bubba, I realized that in Bozeman, Montana, nobody else did. But in Mobile, Alabama last night, I said, I got a cousin named Bubba and everybody in the room laughed. And I said, and you all do too. And it was every color in the room. And they all had a cousin named Bubba. And I said, mine lives in Junction City, Arkansas, which is just one stone throw away from Louisiana's border in the Delta. And they all have a cousin named Bubba too. So I think that's really important for us to keep in mind that there's other sources of knowledge. There's other culturally relevant things. There's things that bind us together. But when it comes to working in this economy and getting ahead and making a livelihood and thriving, it's intellectual capital. So what is part of intellectual capital? Literacy. What does it take to get literacy? Well, it takes a lot of perseverance and hard work for so many of us. And it takes one of the pillars of a knowledge economy, and that is education. And we invest heavily in education. And I'm going to hand it over to Tracy Whedon to go on because, again, I'm complimenting her voice, and this is her message. Tim, I thank you for the honor of having that emphasized 
that we are in a knowledge economy and an information age. I do think, again, in looking back, let's look back to the 1800s, because I stand on two sets of shoulders as a Black woman who is an educator. Sets of shoulders that include literacy giants like those here, but also my ancestors who were denied the right to read in the 1800s because it was a rite of passage to freedom. They could write a pass that allowed them to cross the border to Canada or to go into states where they could actually be free to hopefully live unenslaved. And it's so ironic to me that today the same form of currency will either open up the doors of opportunity or close them. I have the privilege of serving on Mayor Sylvester Turner's Office of Adult Literacy on the advisory board here in Houston. To my knowledge, it's the only mayor's office of adult literacy in the country. And there's a literacy blueprint that echoes what Tim said. When we had Gallup do an analysis of adult literacy nationally, it was very clear that not functional literacy for the workforce, but digital literacy and health literacy are major issues for the marginalized in this country. Think about that for a minute. And if you've ever been in an emergency room, I have. If you cannot read and you're asked to sign all kinds of forms and make decisions, it is a barrier. We have doctors who care about literacy because inadvertently a patient has overdosed because they couldn't read the label or their child suffered because they couldn't read the label. Literacy and quality of life are intrinsically intertwined deeply because of literacy. And so if we think about it as a human right, that is something that regardless of zip code or ideology, we should be able to wrap our arms around together because there's so much that divides us and distracts us. If we keep focused on that as a human right, it can be our guiding light for the future of wherever we live, whoever we love, and where we're heading as a country. Tracy, absolutely. We have to make sure that everyone has the literacy that they need inside of them. They are participants in that knowledge economy. As we begin to think about what's next, what does the future hold? As a leader, it's important to reflect it's that experience, but it's not just experience. It's evaluated experience. And we've evaluated where we've come from, our lessons learned, what has been good about the past, what do we need to change and evolve from the past, what we have learned from neuroimaging and neuroscience and how our brains learn to read. We are now in a moment with knowledge about this space. So many individuals have knowledge. But this panel of people that we have here leading us through this podcast series believe one thing to be true. We have to have the leaders step into these places where they actually embody what it means to lead well in this work. That's what this podcast is going to be about. We are going to be bringing in the voices of people that are doing the work. So as we end with our introduction series, I want us to uh, talk as a group about what does leadership mean? What is it about leadership? What 
What have we learned about what leaders need to be, who they are? As we know, leadership is not about title or position. Leadership is about who you are as an individual. Tim, I'm gonna start with you. Oh my gosh, I was afraid that you might start with me. So I feel deeply that leaders lead by being willing to do any job, any role, any position. If a job's worth doing, it's being worth doing by a leader. I feel that a leader owns where they need to personally grow and develop. I think a leader owns their own poop. And I think a leader models always growing for their team. And I think deeply that each and every one of us, regardless of authority, and we call it in social psychology, the institutional authority you have, you can earn authority through respect and being authentic and honest to who you are and finding a way to add value to a team. And I think that's going to mean very specific things in the role of a literacy leader. Add value, add value, add value. That's me as a leader. I got to add value to other people. You also said something about growing because we tend to think I got my high school diploma, done growing. I got my college degree. I'm done growing. You know what? Put that thinking to the side, lay it to rest, bury that thinking. We have to grow in this work. Linda, what do we need to see in leaders stepping up to the plate? I think one thing that has impressed me about many of the leaders that I think we're going to be speaking with and people that I know personally in leadership roles or functioning as leaders is they're continuously learning. They read research. They actually understand what constitutes scientific research and can parse what they're reading. And they take that idea of studying and their own learning to teachers. So I've seen leaders facilitate learning sessions where they're studying deeply a book or a particular article with teachers, with everyone in the school. So it's this idea of being a continuous learner and of really bringing that knowledge to everyone in your school space and with parents. I've seen many of these leaders who get parents very engaged in the school, in the learning that their children are doing, and also in learning about literacy. And I think a leader has an obligation to the whole community of the school or the district, or if you're a state board member, I can remember during the hearings in California about our screener, Senator Portentino, who carried the screening legislation, brought all kinds of articles for the other board members to dig into and to study. And many of them, did engage in that kind of study. So I think that's an important facet of leadership and of being a true leader. Couldn't agree more. Tracy. 
What does it mean to lead in this space and lead into the future? Terry, I love the quote by Desmond Tutu. There comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they are falling in. Why are superintendents falling in the river? Why are principals falling in the river? Why are literacy coaches and teachers falling in the river? Why are our children falling in the river? We need to deal with this upstream issue. Imagine if every university ensured that teacher preparation and leader preparation programs apprenticed them to get the work as close to right as possible because we're constantly learning, like Linda said and Tim said and you said. But just imagine what a difference that would make in our country. We cannot intervene ourselves out of a poor preparation program any more than we can intervene ourselves out of a first instruction issue. It's the same principle. And so in my head, in the future, I see a complete transformation of how we are apprenticing leaders for the right work and teachers for the right work. Secondly, this work takes grit. It takes a laser focus. We cannot be literacy lazy. We have to be literacy laser focused. Go and see the right work implemented leader so you have a mental model from which to backload and understand how the work should be responsibly rolled out in an unsiloed way so that stakeholders at the table represent an aligned area of focus when it comes to literacy, aligning all of those arrows. Sometimes we get one of the arrows pointing in the right direction. The other ones are going off someplace else. And so, again, don't check your common sense at the door, right? Common sense would say, let's get all of the arrows lined up in a responsible rollout built to last. So that's what I see as the future in elevating those points of light nationally, whether they be universities or districts or state departments, so we can all lean into what they've learned and learn more together. Thank you. You've all added so much value to what we want to see in the future. As I said, we are at a unique point in our country. We are at the precipice where we have knowledge we have understanding. There is a movement happening in this country. We just need the people to step into leadership, step into the future, step into the vision of making sure that every student is able to read. We are so excited about this podcast series. We've got an amazing lineup of guests that these individuals have brought to the table. We're going to dig in. We're going to ask hard questions. And we are going to see leadership rise in the individuals. We want to set these people up as models for you, the listeners, to take something away and make it happen in your classroom, your school, your district, your community, your state, your world. This is all about literacy leadership. We can't wait to go on this journey with you. Thank you for joining us on this journey today in our Literacy Leadership mini-series. Are you ready to embark on a transformative journey through the world of literacy and learning? Look no further than Learning Ally, a beacon of inspiration for learners and educators. 
At Learning Ally, we believe that every individual deserves access to the magic of words. Our vast library of audiobooks and educational resources open doors to boundless knowledge. From classic literature to textbooks and beyond, we provide accessible content that empowers learners, whether you're a student, an educator, or a lifelong learner. Imagine a world where you can explore, learn, and grow without limitations. With Learning Ally, this vision becomes a reality. We empower students to excel academically, pursue their passions, and dream beyond the pages of a book. Visit learningally.org today to explore our solutions, including our audiobook solution, professional learning, Discover the power of literacy, the joy of education, and the limitless possibilities that await you. Visit learningally.org or click the link in the podcast description. We hope to see you there.